Well, hello again, everyone. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike. Uh, I'm here with uh, Gerald. Um, and um, we're going to be talking about the paper I've written a while back, uh, just like I have with several other people. Uh, for those that might not have seen previous conversations, the paper we're discussing can be found um, by typing in uh, bit.ly, bit.ly uh, slash uh, Sola Scriptura Manifesto. So you could download that paper and read along if you want to, uh, but that's what we're discussing today. So I'm gonna allow Gerald to introduce himself and then we'll get started. Go ahead. Hello, I'm, uh, most of my friends call me Jerry, Jerry McGowan. I have a doctorate in systematic theology. I pastored, I'm a retired army chaplain, uh, a Baptist, and uh, I'm not a Protestant. Okay. <laughs> Now, uh, would you say that the, the majority of Baptists don't consider themselves Protestants, or is that just something you personally hold? I think the, uh, the rank and file would say we are not Protestants. I think for most of this, of, uh, let's say, uh, seminary folks, advanced degree folks, uh, would also agree that they do not fit the Protestant profile, but there's a lot of um, carryover that goes both ways. Okay. So a lot of the doctrinal uh, beliefs, the core beliefs of Christianity, we would basically agree on. But as far as church polity, we would disagree, and and we would pro we might disagree on. Uh, the, the 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 your topic of sola scriptura yeah. we would we have a very very high view of scripture yeah uh, let, let me ask you this also um when you say baptist because i'm i'm, I'm not uh, very familiar with, with baptist in general but i do know a little bit but when you say baptist do you include all the denominations that call themselves baptist or are you mostly referring to a, a particular brand of baptist because i know there's many different forms of baptist right there's about a half dozen yeah. major branches of Baptist life. And I will try when I speak, I'll try to, uh, if it's a, a general thing, I'll try to be general. If it's specific to one denomination or another, uh, I'll try to try to do that. Uh, I'm, I am a Southern Baptist. Okay. Uh, particularly, but I know Seventh Day Seventh Day Baptist, which is a very small group, and they meet on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, so you know, as an example, um, what about uh, as far as uh, I'm not sure what the term for it, it is, but as far as uh, one's position on uh, salvation, uh, in my experience, I've come across three different types of Baptists. Um, and I would even say just, and I could be totally wrong, but this is just my observation. Like if I took, if I looked at all the Baptists in the world, uh, everybody that considered themselves Baptist, it seems to me that about, I don't know, maybe 60, 70% fall within the um, one saved, always saved uh, perspective. And then there's another like 20 some percent that fall within the Calvinist perspective. And then there's maybe 10% that fall within the uh, free will perspective. So. Uh, we, are you familiar with that idea of Calvinist versus once it always said versus uh, Armenians? Yes. Uh, Cal Calvinism are, we see it addressed a lot of, a lot of times as reformed Reform, theology. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I do not have a lot of dealing with them. 
Okay. Uh, with that particular group, uh, most, and this is very general, most Southern Baptist churches are opposed to Reformed theology. Okay. Although there are uh, Reformed theolo- reform theology churches in the Southern Baptist sphere, uh, because Southern Baptists really focus on missions and education. And so if you can support missions and you can support the general education idea, then you could be a Southern Baptist. Yeah. Uh, every Southern Baptist church is independent. Uh, there's not a hierarchy that tells a local Southern Baptist church what it can or cannot do. And that's a key point in all Baptists. Uh, across the spectrum, they are independent by nature. Yeah. Uh, they are the most pure democratic form of government out there. It is purely a vote. Yeah. So um, I, I guess, so, I, you know, the question then would be, do you fall on the once saved, always saved side or on the free will Baptist side of things? I'm definitely a once saved, always okay. saved. Okay. So uh, then I kind of know where you're coming from. Um yeah, I've, I've talked to several Baptists and tried to get more definite figures, but from from the most I can put together so far, it seems like the majority of Baptists are on the one side, always safe side, but there are there are several on the Calvinist side and a little bit less on the Armenian side. Yes, I, uh, I, I would say probably 80% are once saved, always saved, okay. and probably 15% are reformed. Uh, usually... Uh, Reformed usually end up either that church moves to become an independent church or uh, out of uh, Baptist life or what we typically would call Baptist life. Mm -hmm. And then you have the free will Baptist, which is kind of a standalone kind of thing. There's also primitive Baptists. I don't know if you're familiar with those at all. Um, uh, Is that connected to Anabaptism or is that something different? It, it's really closer to uh, Mennonites. Mennonites, yeah, a Mennonite I've, I've, connection. Yeah, I've met I met some of those as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm from Romania, and in Romania, it seems most of the Baptists I talk to there fall on the free will Baptist side of things. But I haven't talked to a whole lot, so I could be wrong. But that's my experience. I've, I've run into a lot of free will Baptists there. Anyway, okay, so let's let's uh, move on to to the topic at hand. Um, so. A lot of the things I'm, I'm saying in my paper are not so much me saying them, but I'm quoting what seemed to me as the authority figures within the wider Protestant community. So I kind of follow the evangelical crowd and, and see what who the thought leaders are. And you have people like Alistair McGrath and uh, this Keith Matheson uh, person. I, have, I had quite a few segments from that seems to have been influential because a lot of people I talk to seem to parrot his way of thinking and a lot of the stuff I'm saying comes from them, but you you seem to disagree with that idea. So I'm I'm curious. Um, I'll just let you talk and kind of share where you're coming from, and then I'll have some questions for you. Um, as well, for one thing, the, your your the line that you drew that had fundamentalism on the left and uh, liberal theology on the far right. I mean, I, we can I, flip I, that around. I'm not, I'm not committed well, to the directions, but yeah. Well, I understand. Yeah. Well, if you just stretch it out, the fundamentalism to the right, liberals to the left, or to whatever. But I, I would add a couple of things in there, I think, that would help clarify it a little bit. And that would be 
between liberals and atheists, I would put, I would add cultural Christians. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I've thought of putting that in, but that's a good point. Yeah, because cultural Christianity is really kind of what now now defines the United States. Mm. It's it's not it's certainly not Christian. Yeah. Uh, some people use the phrase post-Christian nation. I don't think that's really appropriate, but cultural Christianity, I think, is kind of what we see in, in the realm of politics today. Yeah, yeah. On the other extreme, on the other side of fundamentalism, I would add uh, New King James only people. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you've met many of those uh, people. I've, I've met quite a few, yes. Uh, but they seem to, God seems to have generously sprinkled them about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have um, had numerous run-ins with King James only only folks. Mm -hmm. And so I'm definitely not in that crowd. Okay, good. And, and then even to the further away than those folks are, and I'm not sure if you've come across folks like this, but the Westover Baptist Yes, yes, yes. I've, yeah, they were even further extreme. Yeah. And then I would add uh, some of the white supremacist mm -hmm, groups mm -hmm. even further. Yeah. Uh, so I hate to even put them in, in, in a context around Christianity, but when you discuss the, the, uh, the power of scripture or the presence of scripture or its precedence of scripture, all of those, I think, have a part because of how destructive they can be. Yeah. Yeah. And how they're mentioned so often, especially in political circles, they try to lump a lot of people to the right in one big category, paint with a with a wide brush, yeah. which I think is very destructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh the the spectrum of Christian perspectives is ex extremely complex. Um, I mean, we could probably, like, if we were careful and detailed, we could probably list tens of thousands of different unique positions that are somewhat different than the, the positions right next to them. Uh, but obviously, for, for the scope of what I'm doing, it will be too, too difficult to get to that detail. I'm just kind of trying to get at some of the bigger categories. Well, the reason the reason I mentioned them was because of 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 how how and what they say about themselves and how they look at how they have stated scripture. They're they're very extreme, yeah. uh, and it's nice to throw the the extremes. But I I think you're also right in that we can never reach the extremes of those that try to place themselves under the banner of Christianity, we would never make it. Yeah, when, when we run out of space on any graphic, at least. Um, so I'm, I'm more concerned in the, in the mechanism of inspiration. And um, I guess the, the, the theological term is revelation and inspiration. So revelation is how God reveals himself to humanity and then how humanity receives that revelation and, and transmits it to others. And I think one of the, one of the, comparison tools we have is to look at other groups that might not be Christian or might be on the extremes of Christianity. For example, Islam, right? Islam has this uh, idea that uh, Allah just came down and, and gave um, Muhammad the Quran as is. I mean, it's like basically almost the book came down from heaven pretty much. It's just exactly the way God wants it. 
um, you know, and we could look at the, the Mormon church and they could say, well, Joseph Smith received those tables and, and copied them down. So basically, whatever people have in their hand is exactly what God gave to the, to the prophet. Uh, in Christianity, we're not, mo even the most conservative Christians are not quite there because we have to acknowledge the fact that there's uh, autograph, the, you know, the original writings, and there's been translations and copies and all this stuff. So uh, pretty much everybody that's informed acknowledges the fact that it's a little bit more tricky than God just dropping a book from heaven. So we have to kind of play around with that and, and figure out exactly, you know, how precise the document we have is compared to what God would have said if, if he could just write the book himself the way he wanted. So, I mean, I'll let you kind of describe your view of, of, of this well, question. That is an important, important point that um, I think the, the person, the average person that sits in a pew really doesn't understand. Uh, I entered seminary when this whole inerrancy issue came about. I, I showed up at seminary, and the first thing I heard people talking about was inerrancy. Yeah, and uh, I'm from well, uh, I'm from the country uh, in Alabama, uh, out in the boondocks. And my first thought, well, which translation is the best one? I mean, that was my my first thought. Yeah, and so this inerrancy question always seemed to be, in a in a real sense, foolishness, because we don't have those documents and we have to trust and the rank and file must trust in the translator because there, I know of no pastor, including myself that is so well-versed in Greek, Aramaic and Hebrew that he can lay that out plainly every Sunday when he stands up to preach. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in one sense, from a practical point of view, this inerrancy question it, to me is kind of foolish so the question then must be, is the Bible that we hold in our hand good? Yeah. And I, I think with uh, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient artif artifacts and, and, and parchments that still come to light, verifies that 99.5% of scripture can be traced right back to the original documents. And then if you take what little bit is left and you toss out name spellings and numbers like a thousand or a hundred thousand or 10,000, and you throw those out, you really only have a handful of scriptures that uh, translators even discuss. And so you find uh, doctoral dissertations over fragments of verses. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so of course, I say that the scripture is, is certainly truthful and uh, as close as we could expect anything that's been translated to be, to the, to the true and errant word of God. Yeah, so um, I guess part of the, the um, scope of what I was trying to, to discuss with this whole thing is that... <clears throat> Uh, you know, we're, we've, I mean, Protestants in general, and I think Baptists will probably fit in this category, regardless of how they feel about Protestantism, but we, we've been talking about the idea of sola scriptura, and that's been kind of a, a slogan or a concept that, you know, ever since 
Protestants broke away from Catholicism has been, you know, some, somewhat prominent within the conversations. And what I've tried to argue is that there, the idea of sola scriptura and the idea of inerrancy is not the same thing. In other words, you can be more relaxed when it comes to the concept of inerrancy, like you could allow for some level of error, and that not, does not necessarily mean you're moving away from sola scriptura. So that's been kind of the main point of what I tried to get across. Um, if that well, makes sense. I, I think it, it would depend upon what kind of era are we talking about? If we're talking about the spelling of a name, that's not really, really an issue. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about a number of, I think it's a hundred, you think it's a thousand. I don't think that's really a big deal either. Yeah. Uh, so, so for those kinds of things, I don't think it, it's, it's a real issue. Uh, but if we, if we move to some other kinds of uh, uh, things about scripture, then uh, it's going to be a real problem. Yeah, so, so this is good. This is, this is kind of where I was going with this. Um, because the, the normal rationale is, look, we're going to take a passage, you know, there might be some mistakes in spelling, whatever, but the overall message has to be correct. And if it's not correct, uh, you know, we're going to be led astray, you know, we're going to believe something that isn't true. So by definition, scripture has to be making the correct point at every, at every step or else it's going to lead us astray. And what I've tried to say is that that's not, even that is not necessarily the case because we have an entire canon. So, you know, you could go to one section of the scripture and if you isolate it and you do your entire theology based on that section and you're, you're diligent, you know, you go to the original manuscripts, you learn your Greek and Hebrew, whatever you have to do, and you're diligent to exegete the passage perfectly. But there is still a possibility that maybe the original author didn't quite understand it or didn't explain it properly. And that still wouldn't be a problem for sola scriptura as a theology because there's, another, there's a, an entire Bible to correct whatever problem is in that passage. And if you're, if you're just going to focus on that one passage and build your theology on it, then it's a problem. But if you go through the entire scripture and you look at everything it has to say on a certain topic, then even if something is, is not clear or maybe it's pointing in a different direction, the rest of the scripture can, can um, you know, kind of redirect you to, to what God intended you to understand. Well, let me, let me see if I can rephrase that in Baptist terminology. Okay. And, and see, see if we're talking about the same thing. Uh, if, you, if you take uh, any given scripture, well, we could take, for instance, um, a passage that you mentioned in your paper. Uh, the uh, Jesus being questioned about divorce. Yeah. So the question is, uh, did Jesus issue a new teaching? Is Jesus correcting an old teaching? Uh, or is Jesus, is Jesus agreeing or disagreeing with Moses? Uh, and so we can, we can ask these kinds of questions in yeah, the text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I let me let me just kind of back up just a little bit. I consider myself a fundamentalist or a conservative. I consider myself a textualist. I focus on the text. Yeah, the text, and 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 I am 
in the minority of Baptists, I think, when I say that all I really care about is what the text says. Yeah. Not just that one scripture, Matthew 19, but the weight of the text. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would look at this, this passage and I would say, see that Jesus immediately goes back to Genesis, which is the foundational basis for marriage. Yeah. And then he says about Moses, about what Moses did, was Moses only did this because of the sinfulness of the men who were wanting these divorces. Yeah. And so the right of divorcement was a protection for the, for the woman. And, and, and for me, uh, may, maybe I, I'm alone here, but for me, a, just a clear, plain reading of that text demonstrates that it's about the protection of the woman. You don't have to really read anything in there. Jesus says it's for the hardness of your hearts. He's talking to men and that they give the writ of divorcement to the woman. It's her get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so, but the, but when you look at the text and you study it and you do all the diligence, like you say, uh, then to me, the weight, the mountain of the scripture falls then upon that text. Yeah. And out of the rubble comes your sermon for Sunday, because it, it's the weight of the, the mountain of the Bible that that directs or indicates the what the message will be based on that text. Yeah, so I think we're kind of saying the same thing. I mean, you're you're not just fixating on one one piece of the Bible, but you're looking at the big picture and the whole story that it has to say. And I think that's the key about how Jesus went about um and I'm not saying that Jesus as the son of God couldn't introduce something new. And I think he did introduce new ideas and, and bring, bring additional insights. But a lot of times we see Jesus talking and it just seems that Jesus is actually faithful to the Old Testament. Like he's reading it the way people should have read it all, all along. It's the Pharisees that were not being faithful. They were, they were pulling things out of context or they were not really reading God's heart into the things that were taking place. And they were just taking it legalistically, like, you know, here's a set of rules, just follow those rules and that's it. But if you have this big picture uh, of who God is and what he's trying to accomplish, then it, it kind of aids your interpretation along. Um, I, I don't know. I want to give you a chance to kind of share what your concerns are and then maybe i'll wait to interrupt uh, until a little little bit later and i'll ask you some more questions well let me just add one little bit about this idea of, of of scripture it really depends on your view of how big your god is if you have a small god who does not intervene in the affairs of men then there's not a lot that you're going to be able to, to uh, grab a hold of in the scripture. You're going to discount miracles. You're going to dis- discount the changed lives of people who come to faith. But if you have a big God, then, then you can understand that God can do great and big and wonderful things. He can heal. He can touch people. He can remove addictions and he can do these kinds of, these kinds of things. So I think it's important uh to have an understanding of, of, of where or how big your God is and how, and what kind of position you give authority. When I, when I was growing up, uh, one of my mentors, uh, Ralph, brother, Ralph Haygood, he's gone on to be with the Lord. 
he was famous for holding up his Bible and saying to the congregation, I believe every word of this is true, so much so that I believe even the fake leather is real. And so, so it's your, your, you know, your view, your high view of scripture, your, your idea of how big is your God really plays a role in this idea of sola scriptor. Uh, and, and I think that's, to me, that's key. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I think one of the, the values of looking at the whole spectrum of Christian theologies is to see that different people have different elements in their theology. So, you know, almost everybody has respect from, for scripture in some way. So for example, I've, I've had conversations with some, some people from the more liberal side of things, and they didn't appreciate the idea that they don't have a high view of scripture, but their high view of scripture is definitely different than maybe your high view of scripture. They, they see it as a book that they need to respect and value and, and a book that they can read and, uh, and connect with God through, but they, they don't always see everything in it as something that should inform their theology. And because they, they don't get the majority of their theology from scripture, then they have to have other sources, whatever they might be, you know, like for the Catholics, it might be the church itself. For more liberals, they have to go to science, they have to go to philosophy and other elements. But I think the, the definition of sola scriptura is that we get our our theology, and by theology, I mean our entire perspective of, of reality. So I'm, I'm using a broad definition of theology, meaning everything we believe about the nature of reality. And sola scriptura simply should mean that we get our entire picture from scripture as opposed to other sources. Now, I personally don't think inerrancy is necessarily a component of that, because as long as you're faithful to the whole of the scripture, whether some parts of it might be uh, errant or not, doesn't really affect the whole, because you're still getting all of your theology from only the Bible. Um, well, you, you must know different liberals than I do. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, it's because, true. There, there's because, a wide variety because, of them. Because there, there's really, to me, there's two camps in the, in, in the liberal theology. There's the one that, that are honest with scripture, but they discount miracles and, yeah. and uh, the, much of the supernatural. Yeah. Then there are those others, uh, liberal, that bring a host of agenda items into the things such as uh, the LBJQ agenda, the homosexual agenda, yeah. the, uh, uh, I went blank on um, uh, the Latin American uh, oh, liberal theology, liberal, sorry, li liberation theology, liberation theology. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. uh, I went totally blank. It's I guess it's my age. And, and, and so, you know, I've had more dealings with the latter than I have with the, with the former, yeah. though. While I was a chaplain on active duty, I did have some dealings with the former and, and we could fellowship. We could take communion together. We could do so many things together. We shared pulpits. We did these kinds of things. Yeah. But uh, you're right. They they have a different definition of what, uh, or, or their view of scripture is very different from the more conservatives or evangelicals would be. So I agree completely. Yeah. So so my main concern is just basically that, like, what are the sources of theology, and is it possible to get your entire theological paradigm just from the Bible? That's the question I was working with, and. 
I think it is, even though today the majority of scholars don't think it's possible to just use the Bible. Well, that, that, that's interesting because uh, the scholarship that I'm familiar with would go the other way. Okay. Uh, of course, I'm, uh, I went to a Southern Baptist, uh, well, an Alabama Baptist University, Sanford yeah. University, in Birmingham, Alabama. And then from there, I went to New Orleans Theological Seminary. And then I went to, for my doctorate, I went to an independent Baptist school. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is my professional education. But in my professional life, I dealt with, you know, a a broad spectrum. And and being in the uh, military chaplaincy, you had to deal with all kinds uh, of, of Christians from Catholic yeah. to Orthodox, Orthodox Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the whole nine yards, all the way to, uh, to Mormon, Seventh-day Adventists, and, and, and the others. Uh, so I, I, I don't know, ca- I, I could be wrong on this, but my, per, my perception is that during a lot of the 20th century, uh, the more conservative side of evangelicalism uh, was more popular, while today it seems that, and it's not really liberal, but it's more towards the liberal side within the within the scholarly world. It seems like they're they're more popular today. Uh, I, I would I would say the position that I see as the most popular is neo orthodoxy. So, so people I agree. Have like a Barthian perspective on on reality. Yeah, I I agree. I think in the scholarship world, I think that is the the dominant view. But if we, as we begin to scale it back to those that stand in the sola scripture category, I think it would swing the other way. Yeah, away yeah. Of, from of course, of course. In the sola scripture okay. category, you have to be more conservative. Right. So my, okay, so the next ob- objection that the rest of the academic world would, would throw at people who claim to be sola scriptura is the, the idea that there isn't a methodology. So for example, uh, the argument could be put like this. Imagine you got a thousand people who have never seen a Bible, never heard of Christianity, don't know anything about it, coming from different perspectives all over the world. And you have a few minutes or maybe an hour, whatever you need to sit with them and explain to them a methodology. And then you give them the Bible and you say, here, take the Bible and figure out what it says for yourself. So what exactly can we tell them during those 30 minutes or an hour, whatever it is that? where we can explain to them that that methodology. Well, well, I thought when I read that in your paper, I, I really, I really started laughing because there's a number of things uh, uh, that came to mind. Uh, One is the Jesus film. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it was uh, uh, taken to Africa and to South America and to Asia, and they would show this Jesus film and people immediately flocked to come to know Christ Jesus. Churches were started, missionaries were started. So I think there is a methodology there. Uh, secondly, uh, there's a, and uh, I had meant to, to dig it out, but I'm not sure. I think I know right where, now I think I know right where it is. There is a, a graphic novel style Bible. I don't know if you've seen those. Yeah, probably not. Uh, it is. It, uh, are you familiar with graphic novels? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. You know, they pictures, lots of artwork, kind of mm-hmm. cartoony. Mm-hmm. There's now two graphic art Bibles that are out there. Yeah. And they are just uh, here in Southwest Florida, where I live now. These are, these are things that are just spreading like wildfire. And we're seeing more young people coming to Christ than we have in the last several years. So I think the methodology is you have a plain reading of scripture. You interpret scripture by scripture. And you, uh, and you, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like iron sharp, sharpening iron. And, and uh, you look for that plain reading and you look for uh, simple, the simple explanation first. And, and you go and you, that's, that is the, uh, the basic approach. And I think that's a methodology. Yeah. No, it is a methodology. All, all, all I can say is that most of the people that I'm reading and that I'm coming across disagree that the methodology works. Uh, well, I, I would, I, I know I've had people say that to me too. Yeah. And I said, and I asked them, how large is your church? Is your, is your denomination uh, expanding or is it declining? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and we kind of, you know, part ways at that point. Uh, but I, I think it does work. I think it has proven that it's worked and uh, uh, over over history. And I think in areas where uh, such as uh, China, I think it's demonstrably showing that it's worked by the number of Christians that are being persecuted there and being imprisoned there. And I would also add, uh, while I was a chaplain, I was stationed in South Korea and became very aware of North Korean Christians that were put in internment camps and they would escape and come South. And they all, all of them, I don't know of any exceptions, but they said it was the plain reading of scripture that meant everything to me. And they said, especially when it came to the gospels, the other passages of the Bible were more difficult for them, but the plain reading of the gospels just cannot be challenged i don't think yeah yeah so i'm i'm not opposed to the plain reading of the bible as you described i do believe that you know you could have people pick up a bible and not know anything and just read it from beginning to end and get a lot out of it i think in in academia a lot of the concern has been all the differences in theology so uh you know people are looking at all the points of disagreement between different types of Christians and, and trying to figure out what the cause is and how to differentiate the, them and, uh, and how to kind of sort through those things. So um, it seems like you could get equally sincere Christians who have an equally high view of, Bi- of the Bible reading it. And then we, st- we still end up with all these denominations and, and uh, many different perspectives and, um, doesn't seem like there's a solution to explain why one person goes this way, one person goes that way. Well, I, I would I would disagree with you there uh, to to an extent because I'm sure you're familiar with Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, yeah, in which he lays out the fundamental beliefs of Christian Christians, and I, I think except for groups that I would consider cult groups. And I think, I think, just speaking to you for a little while, I think you would agree uh, which ones we're, I'm talking about without yeah. naming them. Yeah. Uh, that if we exclude those, and we take the most most liberal 
Christians and we take the most liturgical Christians and we take the most evangelical Christians, you put them all in a room together, they would all agree. Mm -hmm. So it comes to how we practice our denomination, how we practice our faith or how we practice uh, church government or how we practice how we do the Lord's Supper, whether we do it weekly, monthly, daily, quarterly, yearly. Uh, and we, we, we strip away all those superficial kinds of things, and we still have the, the unified Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. So your, your take is that um, there's the essentials where there's general agreement, and then there's the non-essentials where there might be difference, and uh, maybe on the practical side especially, and so on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I do agree that there's, there's some agreement on the essentials. So we could say that I think today we're, things have gotten a little bit harder to, to deal with because of just, just modern, uh, modern realities. I mean, you know, science has brought in a lot of new ideas and people are trying to sort through those and kind of figure out how they, um, harmonize with Christianity and then we have the cultural trends and where Christians fit in this whole thing so it's a little bit tough I think maybe 100 years or 200 years ago it would have been easier to say yeah we have all these things in common um, with minor variations in practice and, and non-essentials well I, I, I agree that that 200 years ago 50 years ago 20 years ago even uh, I think we would we'd be there, the, but but you bring in another, uh, and in your paper you mentioned this too about science. Um, there's been zero archaeological evidence to show that anything in the Bible is wrong. Zero, but there's been a tremendous amount of archaeological data showing the Bible is correct. Uh, uh, Ramsey's book that's a classic, The Seven Churches of Revelation, is a great example of that. He was, he was uh, an agnostic, challenged, uh, is the Bible real? And he said, well, I'm going to go prove it isn't. And he, you know, he was converted. And we have other archaeologists that have been converted uh, who have set out with a preconceived notion that there's no way this is true. And they find that, that it is true. Uh, uh, I been following uh, a lot of uh, Israel archaeology recently, and uh, I was watching an interview with the president of the uh, of the trust that oversees the Temple Mount, a Muslim, and he yeah. says there's absolutely no evidence there was ever a temple here. And uh, almost just a few weeks after that interview, they found temple coin money or shekels that were designed to be used only on the temple. And I'm thinking, well, I wish we could ask him that same question. What about these shekel coins that are clearly designed for the temple use? Yeah. Uh, and uh, we find uh, uh, the, the, these, kinds, these kinds of things all the time, but archaeology doesn't disprove scripture. And so then we come to the biggest uh, scientific hit that Christianity is taken, and that is uh, Charles Darwin. And so we, we have a lot of uh, 
people say, well, doesn't Charles Darwin prove that Christianity isn't true? Well, if you go back and read what Charles Darwin actually said, Charles Darwin was a Christian, and he was just recording, recording, recording what he saw and asking questions, yeah. uh, doing a good scientific thing. But if you go and ask biologists, are you a D Darwinian uh, evolutionist? And they will deny it. They, they do believe in evolution, but not Darwinian evolution. But yet Darwinian evolution is taught in the public schools as truth, not as theory. And the biologists just are not uh, Darwinian evolutionists. And in fact, uh, a few years ago, I had a friend of mine who was a research biologist and he said he had a, a researcher join his team. And she says, well, how come there's nothing, there's no reference in your works or papers about Darwin? And he says, do you believe in Darwinian evolution? And she goes, yes. He goes, what school did you go to? <laughs> so wow. she didn't last very long. Uh, so th I think the problem with science and Christianity is more of a media problem than it is a scientific problem. Um, so <clears throat> what would you classify yourself on the, on the spectrum? Would you be like a young earth creationist, an old earth creationist, a theistic evolutionist, or, or have you, are you familiar <laughs> with those labels? I am familiar with them. Uh, I'm, uh, I belong to, uh, several apologetic sites yeah. in which these questions come up all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's it's hard to know how, how to answer that question. Uh, I do not believe the world is billions of years old like, like some people, some uh, scientists, geologists have said. I've seen geologists, you know, the, the range is millions to billions. And I think that's just absurd. If you don't know, just say you don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I am, I don't believe that the earth is as old as the uh, old geologists say that it is, but I don't believe that, that the earth was created 8,000 years ago either. Okay. So I'm, I don't think, I, I think it's, it's a mistake to take the Bible as a scientific book. It's not, it's not a science textbook. It's, it's a book about uh, coming to know God. It's about God self-revealing his heart. It's not God revealing how old the earth is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does any of that affect, um, you know, the Genesis story, Adam and Eve, uh, the fall, the plan of salvation or. Not at all. Not for me, not at all. Okay. And I, and I think for, I think for most evangelicals, it doesn't really play a role either. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, the gap theory that, yeah. that people play around with. And, and there's the, uh, in Kentucky, the, uh, the art museum. Is that what it's called? The art museum? Um, I know what you're talking about with Ken Ham. Right. Museum of the art, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think that they're putting out information that, that, uh, is trying to stretch scripture and try to make it more into a scientific textbook. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's trying to make scripture something that it is not. And, and I have problems with that. Okay. Um, so overall, you would, would you think that there was death before sin? 
death before sin? Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't okay. think so at all. I don't. I don't think the scripture supports that. Uh, although there, there's an interesting Jewish tradition that Adam had two wives. Hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. His first wife was named Lilith. Okay. And uh, you, are you familiar with this? I heard the two wives. I never heard about the, the Lilith part. But. The Lilith part. Well, it, it's a little R-rated, but I'll try to make it simple. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, there is the, the Jewish idea of what positions a, a couple should have engaged in, in sexual intercourse. And Lilith wanted the other way around. And so she was taken out of the picture. Now, this is a rabbinic tradition. Yeah, uh, it's it's not biblical in any sense. It's it's just shows you. Uh, it's an example of where you can go when you leave the scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, I I don't want to keep us uh, going for too much longer because we're coming up on an hour. But did you have any other thoughts you wanted to share about the paper before we? Uh... Uh, yes, I made I made notes. Okay. <laughs> Let's make sure you get uh, as much in there as we can. Right. Uh, let's see. I, we did that. We did that. Uh, I, I did. You, you mentioned Matheson. I, I did agree with, with uh, your take on him. Uh, but I don't think your references, I don't think they really expressed the uh, about the evangelical movement as it's expressed today. Uh, I think the the emphasis of evangelicals has always been the Great Commission, uh, sharing the gospel with people with, with a desire that they accept Christ as their savior. Yeah. And and uh, so I, I, I thought anything outside of that is is denominational fluff. And it's really not the core of the evangelical movement. Uh, have you come across this book before? Yes. Okay. I did not read it, <laughs> but I've read excerpts from it. Yeah. Uh, then you've also you also quoted uh, Carlton Clark at least twice. Yeah, he's an Orthodox theologian. Right, and uh, I I I think he unfairly characterized the idea of self-interpreting scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought. Uh, uh, I don't know how else you can approach the text if you don't let the text define the text. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, so someone coming from an Orthodox perspective is almost the same as coming from a Catholic perspective who, who is right. naturally going to argue against the idea of self-interpretation because right. they believe that the church has to do the interpretation for you. But what I, one of the reasons I, I, I quoted him is because Matheson quotes him. Right. Make his case. So Matheson uses... Clark Carlton to make the case for the position he's advocating. Right. So, yeah. Uh, I, I just don't think, I, I think Matheson loses credibility by quoting Clarkson. And I think he does more harm to his argument by quoting him uh, than, than the other way. Uh, also on page, and I know we're really getting into the weeds here, on page 31. Okay, let me you, let me catch up with you really quick. I have the paper here. Page 31. Okay. Yeah, you have on there, you, you're talking, I think it's about the middle of the page. All right. And you have angelic forces. Okay. 
Um, or at war or at battle. Yes, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I would change that to demonic. Demonic force, okay. Uh, the, the, re the reason being there is a preconceived idea that angelic is always good. And okay. obviously in your context, they are not. Yeah, yeah. Or you okay. could add evil angelic forces. Okay, I'll keep that in uh, mind. I'll have to read it more carefully because I can't see it at the moment, but yeah. I, I think I know what you're talking about. I have a yeah. different page number here. And, and then cosmic, the cosmic warfare, when you're talking about dualism, Yeah. I, I was really confused there. Because uh, I don't see I don't see that that cosmic war battle warfare dualism as you do. And and especially now after we have talked and I've gotten to know you a little bit, I'm really perplexed at you using that kind of, uh, of language of cosmic dualism and cosmic warfare. Uh, no, that, that's two separate things. Cosmic dualism um, is a heresy that came up in uh, Manichaeanism back in like the fourth or fifth century. I don't remember exactly now. Right. Uh, basically, um, was it Marcion? Uh, I'm Marcion, kinda, I think yeah. so. Yeah, he came up with this idea that basically you have two equal but opposing forces. And they're constantly in battle. Sometimes one is winning, the other losing, but it's all, it always balances itself out. And that was dismissed as a heresy. Right. But all I'm saying is that the cosmic conflict paradigm that has become more popular the past few decades because of apologetics. So you have William and Craig and others that promote this idea. It's a different thing than cosmic dualism. They're two separate ideas. They're not the same thing. Well, as I was reading in your paper, I was wondering if you, if you were interchangeably using those. So that, that helps. Yeah, I'm trying to but, differentiate them, actually. But I don't even see cosmic warfare. I look at that very differently. Satan in the book of Job is always uh, uh, is presented as subservient. He comes to God. He says, can I do these things? Uh, Joel would reject you if you would let me do X, Y, and Z. And God says, well, you just go ahead dealing with God's permissive will there. But th there's really not a battle. Uh, and so I, I was trying to think of the instances of come up with all the instances I could come up with, with cosmic, with, where there would be a supernatural battle going on. And the only one that I could come up with was in Daniel. When uh, Gabriel is on his way to speak to Daniel and he says, I was hindered yeah. 21 days and I had to call Michael to come and help me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, but that really isn't a cosmic battle. That was a, a, a supernatural battle that interfered with God's message going to Daniel. And so I, I really <clears throat> don't see that as a, as a, as certainly not cosmic warfare maybe a cosmic skirmish. Okay. Uh, or, 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 you know. I think the imagery for the cosmic battle comes out of uh, Revelation, you know, where you have the dragon and, you know, there's a, there's a war in heaven and Satan and his angels are cast out and all that. But, you know, not that you mention it, I'm actually curious how Baptists uh, view the big pictures because, you know, I, I interacted quite a bit with reformed people and they have- Don't the hang out with them anymore. Yeah, well, I, I, it's, it's difficult to hang out with them, but I've already spent quite a bit of time with them. But anyway, with reform people, they have this big paradigm that's based on God's sovereignty. 
So once you understand their sovereignty motif, you understand how they view the big picture. You know, who is God? What is he doing? What is he trying to accomplish? It all makes sense once you understand the underlying premise of sovereignty and, and, and determinism. But I haven't really talked to Baptists to see how your big picture comes together. Like, what, what is God trying to accomplish? Why is there sin? Why is there suffering? What are the... Because you do allow free will, but you allow free will only for the person to make a choice. And after that, it, their choice is settled. You know, they've, they've accepted Christ and, and that's it. So you have some element of free will, but not, not the way the free will Baptist, for example, would have it. Well, I would characterize it a little differently. Uh, you, have, you have free will in the big picture up until you accept Christ as your personal savior, and then your salvation is determined. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's or, what I'm saying. Or your lostness is determined. If you, you reject know. Christ. Right, if you reject Christ the final time. The final time. Um, so so, so, so in, in, in that sense, that's true. But after you accept Christ, you still have many, many choices to make. Yeah, yeah. Will you be faithful today? Will you be faithful tomorrow? Will you be faithful next week? And so all of that affects your sanctification, your justification, uh, holiness, righteousness, all of it, it, it still affects, it still has a, has a role to play in your development as, as a Christian. And so when, uh, I guess this picture is commonly used in Baptist life, when you get to heaven, you will have a crown. How many diadems will you have in your crown? Yeah. Will it be one? You just slipped under the door or will you have, you know, a crown full? Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, so, so, so that's one aspect <clears throat> of it, but the, the other the, the other, the big picture thing is I certainly acknowledge God's sovereignty. Uh, God is creator. I think the most important verse in all the Bible is Genesis 1-1. Yeah. God is creator. We are the creature. And that is the only kind of relationship we can ever have with God is creator, creature, creature, creator. That's the only relationship that's possible. Yeah, uh, we get we get treated differently. Other, we get treated better than a creature because we're joint heirs with Christ, but we're still fundamentally a created being. So, how do you? What is your answer to somebody that's asking the question? You know, why is God allowing so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, that that's uh, not one of those things you can do a short answer on. But let me yeah. let me let me be as quick as I can. And I think I can, I've answered this so many times. I think I can do it pretty quickly. If you took, take an apple and you drop it, it will have a bruise on it. Yeah. And you pick up the apple and you cut the bruise off. It's still scarred. Mm -hmm. You drop the apple again and it has another bruise. You throw it against the wall. It has a bruise. Pretty soon it will have so many bruises. It'll be inedible. Yeah. Now, at any point, you could have eaten the apple. You might have only eaten half the apple, a third of the apple, or a quarter of the apple, but at some point along the line, it became inedible. So we can't judge how inedible the fruit is until after it has been destroyed. And so God allows, God's permissive will allows evil to play out so that true and complete justice can be done. 
it isn't until after all the evil is played out can justice truly be rendered. So for, for example, we have this in, in the Old Testament, uh, the sins of the father visits even to the third and fourth generation. Yeah. But the next part of the verse, but righteousness goes for generations to generations. It's more. Yeah. So if, if someone does an evil act, until that evil act has accomplished all it's going to accomplish, that person can't be judged yet. Oh, I see. So it basically has ripple effects and you have to have the full picture to be able to render a proper judgment. That is correct. Yeah. Now, why did God allow for sin to exist to begin with? Was that, was that inevitable? Like, couldn't have God just created Adam and Eve perfect and everybody else perfect and just kept them perfect? Or is that where free will comes in? Well, I think that's where free will comes in. And, and, and I have atheists uh, beat me up on apologetic websites all the time saying, well, God is not judge. And I noticed that you had an example, uh, if, if God allows X, Y, and Z, then God isn't just and so forth. But yeah. uh, uh, those, those arguments are uh, academic in nature, scholarly in nature. Mm-hmm. But where the rubber meets the road is, is God, does God allow evil? Well, uh, I came across this. And I don't remember where. I wish I did. Uh, but how do you, uh, the question was raised, how do you define good and a student raises his hand and says because of the absence of evil and the teacher goes no you define evil because it's the absence of good but how do you define good and so they go around the circle and and so i've all i've never uh read or never came across how you define good from a you know academic standpoint but i know how to define evil because there's no good in it Mm. But how do you define good outside of God? Yeah, I, I don't know that you can. Well, that's definitely a conversation all its own. So I don't want to <laughs> jump into something new now when we're already past. Well, the I'm hour, happy but... to have that one with you sometime. Sure, sure. Uh, we can definitely do this again. I, I just uh, prefer to keep the, the videos short enough for people to watch because otherwise nobody's going to bother watching anything. <laughs> I completely, long. Yeah. I completely understand. Mike, I want to tell you, I've enjoyed this. Uh, I'm retired and, and I do not get an opportunity to read papers like this, like I did when I was teaching uh, <clears throat> and, and iron sharpens iron. And, and I have enjoyed this so much and oh, I have yes, studied yes. and I've gone back and I've read, I've got copious notes. I even came up with some quotes from Arrhenius and <laughs> that I was going to share, but I just, it's just such a blessing for me to have the privilege of doing this with you. And I hope I was of some benefit to you. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Jerry. Yeah. I, I, I thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate it. Um, I uh, basically, I'm trying to finish this program. I'm in, as soon as possible, because I'm trying to get in another program. So I'm kind of in a rush to get my dissertation done over the next few weeks and and, uh, finish everything up. But I'm also trying to maintain this channel up and have conversations and and get as much feedback as possible. So uh, is this paper the the core of your your dissertation? So the way I have to do it, because I'm in a in a doctor of ministry program, which is different than a PhD, the way I have to do it is I have to 
use the paper, but then work with other people. So I'm going to connect with other ministers and other theologians and ask them to kind of run through the paper and then uh, try to apply it to other people they talk to and then get feedback that way. So it's a little bit of a kind of a different setup the way it's happening. But um, these conversations are helping me because it's helping me to like get different perspectives and feedback from different different sources. I'm trying to even talk to atheists and, and people that are completely on a different, you know, coming from a very different point of view and get their feedback as well. So well, if I knew a nice atheist, I would I would give you give you his number. <laughs> well, there, there's plenty out there, but uh, I I have some really cool atheist friends, but unfortunately they're too busy to get get caught up in stuff like this. But uh, hopefully I'll find somebody. But uh, well, anyway, yeah, if, we could we could maybe uh, arrange for a second second meeting like this in a few weeks and uh, see if we could cover some of the other things you came up with. I, I would be interested to. Uh, to see to hear your uh, methodology uh, with uh, Sola Scripture and, and see uh, and, and see where that how that plays out. I, I would be very interested to see what your methodology is. Okay, okay. So maybe that's the next topic we could get into if we ever do this again. All right. Well, thank you again. God bless and may God richly bless you and bless this 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 time of study for you. I miss it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. I enjoy it. And I enjoy talking to, to all the different people I'm meeting. All right, Jay. Well, thanks a lot. Let me pause the recording and I'll, uh, I'll uh, chat afterwards. Thanks.